There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Hannah Strong. On the show this week, it is the happiest time of the year and probably my favourite episode. Uh, we're going to be doing all killer and no filler, counting down the best movies of 2023. So... Just to get things started, like people that are, you know, following the magazine will know that there is a list officially out there talking about what the official Little White Lies picks are for the best films of 2023. But, you know, not to be too negative, uh, how do you guys feel about the worst of lists that some people put out? <laughs> um well, ha- having accidentally started a Twitter discourse about this once this week, I'm I'm, I'm loath to say anything, but um I don't know. I I think it it I'm not 100% opposed, but I think there has to be like proper rationale to it. I don't think it's useful to just put a list out there ragging on films that you didn't like. Now, now that makes me sound like I don't like them at all. I don't know. It, it's context, isn't it? I, th- I, I think that like I think it's reverse shot in their like ends of the end of the year thing. They do like a like a sins of the year thing where they pick out like one very specific thing from a film or like a, a you know a moment that they like really really hated and that I love but yeah just to me like putting out a list of like I didn't like these films just feels a bit like unproductive like what am I, what am I supposed to do with that congrats on being a hater my, my take is that I think if you if we're doing best of lists then there has to be worst of lists that has to be allowed <laughs> if we're allowed to say what we love then we, we, we're allowed to say what we hate because those those two emotions do not kind of cancel each other out but I do agree I think that there are ways to do it in a constructive and nuanced way. Because, you know, we, we spend the year on this podcast and on our website, you know, we see films that we kind of argue the case against. So that material is already out there for people to see. And all the worst of the year list will be doing is collecting it all together and, you know, in, in, in a single package. You know, there, I, I understand there are a lot of people who dislike it for reasons of like, it's kind of offensive to the filmmakers who put so much effort into making their films. But, you know, like every film takes a lot of time and effort to make and some of them work and some of them don't. And, you know, this is this is what we are and what we do. So, I mean, you know, but I think by by, by denying that would be deni- denying it the very raison d'etre of journalism and criticism. So, you know, that's that's my my reason for 
Well, I, I guess my issue with it is more that I feel that they're never terribly well informed because if there's some like incredible gem that comes out of here, like, you know, you hear about some, you know, tiny little film, you know, that that's, you know, absolutely incredible. You go out of your way to seek it out. And basically, unless I'm being paid or hired to go and see something, I'm not going to go watch Jurassic Park Dominion or, you know, some janky little horror film that's like absolute rubbish or quite frankly thought Skinnamarink was really overrated. So I, I actually think that I'm sort of self-editing. So like I, whatever I think is going to be my worst films of the year is going to be pretty poorly informed. I think that often the problem is with, with worst of lists, it's just someone saying, I didn't like this. And if you liked it, then you're an idiot. That's like the tone of all of these like worst of lists. And it's like, okay. I'm not sitting there as a fan of the of films and saying if you don't like it, then you, you know you're invalid. I, I really, if I like a film and someone dislikes it, it's either cause for a kind of fun debate about that, or it's just like great, all the more for me. <laughs> you know, it doesn't doesn't impact my life in any way unless they're kind of being you know really obnoxious about it. And I'm sure people feel that way. You know, when I tweet about not liking a film, I remember I, I think probably one of my least favorite watches of the year was Bottoms. And I tweeted about not liking Bottoms and I'd written a review and people got really angry with me about it. And it's like, I'm allowed to have that opinion. I just, yeah, I guess it's it's just it, like everything. It's kind of how you disperse that information, isn't it? Some of them can be very funny. When I read a, li- a list that is like pure hatred and it's written in quite a funny way, then I'm like, oh yeah, okay, this is funny. Even, even when I like the films, but... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I do always think that there's kind of a misconception with this role that it's more, like, combative than it is. Like, I, I I have, like, my brother or, like, certain friends that'll be like, oh, I really didn't like that film that you liked, or vice versa, and I will be like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's that nice is, for you. Yeah, <laughs> very, very, very odd, where it's like, I, I feel like people expect me to be... Ridley Scott defending Napoleon. Yeah, I, I think Hannah's completely right. I mean, it is about context, and I think you're right too. Like, if we're going to be, if you're going to be very strict about these things, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to do a worst of the year list, you have to do the, you have to do the work. You, you have to try and see as much as possible and, and have the broadest possible canvas. It is an issue with like the entire industry, but it's kind of a bit the clickbaitification of, <laughs> of of film criticism, where it's like it feels inevitable that people will publish a worst of list and they'll put something that's really good on it just to be discoursey. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's I think that's that's absolutely fine. And to be honest, I think that we shouldn't really be policing what people hate as, as long as they are able to kind of, you know, justify it in some way. Yeah, what Hannah says is true. I think that, like, I, would mi- I wouldn't mind a little bit more kind of, I understand you like this, but actually, for me, it didn't work, rather than this is bad, and if you like it, you're evil and stupid, which is, which is sometimes the implication in, in these things. But I'm happy for people who, who, who want to do these if they want to do them properly. Like, there's a critic, Mike McCahill, uh, who... He's been on the pod before and he's, he writes, writes for Little White Lies and he's, he writes reviews for The Guardian and he kind of makes a point of, see, like, you know, he sees pretty much everything that comes out and he, and he reviews it, you know, sometimes for The Guardian, sometimes just capsules for his own website. So he is someone who, if he did a worst of the year list, I would, I would trust him because he is someone who has, you know, seen the majority of releases of the year and actually will have, like, will be able to sort of survey that landscape with some measure of expertise whereas yeah there are people who 
you know, we'll dive into a couple of festivals and see if some small films that didn't work for them. And just by dint of the fact that they haven't watched very much, those will end up being on their worst of the year list. So, yeah. Do you have kind of like any ethics about like a real panning review? I mean, like, I mean, that's not necessarily like connected to worst of the year, but like personally, I try to never hold a film's like cheapness against it. Um, that feels unfair to me but like oh do you have do you have something of like a system where you're just like oh i'm not going to like really go in on this for any particular reason yeah i think that as an editor I, you know I, I i'm sort of very very conscious of this kind of stuff and you know if I, I feel that like part of being a critic is being able to discern that about knowing which which films deserve which treatment like you know mm. if there's a if i think of of original earnest intent that is maybe quite small scale and you watch it and it and it just doesn't work at all for you or you have some sort of like deep criticisms of it i think that you have to you have to judge the tone with which that you you kind of articulate that whereas if it's you know if it is a huge big blockbuster film that the, the studios have maybe been sort of hiding away and haven't preview screened and you know art you know artistry originality and the things that you value are obviously secondary to this enterprise then you know that's when that's when you can go in studs up a bit and and have a play like I, you know i felt justified to be to sort of write quite a negative review of the 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 hunger the new hunger games film because for me that felt like a cash a franchise cash in where there was an attempt to make to sort of reignite a, a sort of dormant franchise and the the actual kind of film itself felt like an afterthought so like um you know that for me was something that felt justified well i mean also with that in the case of that one just sitting next to you and watching I, I could kind of feel you physically that like was a horrible, horrible when you feeling. realized there was another hour to go despite it having had quite a clear ending any any really negative reviews this year that you you feel very justified in having written um yeah i think i justified my bottoms review and my cat person review um i'm trying to remember what oh else my I, God, I, cat person. yeah terrible Ooh. film really quite awful and again like that's an indie film you never want to like especially with independent films you don't want to kind of go in there and start like shooting <laughs> um because it is you know they struggle like lionsgate will be fine if someone dislikes the hunger games that's totally fine you know they've got millions and millions of dollars to keep them warm at night but yeah with indie films you know it can massively affect not only the kind of that film but you know the kind of the the director and the actors like going forward um but at the same time if i think a film is genuinely like very bad and it and particularly with regards to like subject matter and the way things are handled i think yeah there is a kind of duty to write about that and do it in a way that is you know kind of clear-eyed which can be difficult when you're really angry at a film like I remember watching Cat Person just being so angry I was like what a waste of my time this is there's no no feeling worse worse as a critic than like I've had my time wasted by a film sometimes you watch a bad film and you're like well I'm still kind of glad I saw it even though it wasn't very good but yeah I mean it is difficult I mean we I think David and I always say this like kind of younger critics that are coming in to do work with us it's so much harder i think to write like a a a well-written bad review like you know especially for someone like little white lies where i think we do want to engage with what we're watching we're not just kind of writing a pan for the sake of writing a pan um indeed we have written good reviews of big silly blockbuster films before so you know i think there's maybe a misconception that we we, uh... david defended the eternals (laughs) he did yeah very hard yeah 
And I probably, I probably actually wrote one of the nicer reviews of The Flash as well, <laughs> considering how 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 badly that got um, pilloried. So you know, it's it's just all about being honest in the end, trying to sort of justify what you're saying rather than going on a you know invective strewn polemic that that and that's highly subjective and doesn't it doesn't justify your your argument. That's it. That's that, that that applies to pro and con, I think. Yeah, f- fully agreed. I mean, and and despite what many of our colleagues complain about on Twitter, that's why I, I do love the embargo system in a way, that, like, a lot of the times you do have to form your thoughts in a bubble and then we all at once discover what everyone else thought and there isn't too much, like, groupthink, I think, under that system. I think, I think that's part of the fun of it, is, like, you know, when the embargo lifts and... Especially if it's a film that is quite divisive. You know, you immediately have that thing of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe XYZ said XYZ about it. You know, I think it's really fun. I love the saw X1 lifting and everyone being like, good, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And I believe that was the first saw that they'd ever screened to critics. And yes, speaking to the PRs, um, they were as surprised as anyone. (laughs) But um, we should get on to some of the actual best films of the year. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. David, I believe your first choice is Earth Mama, something that just recently did quite well at the Biffers, so, you know... You're, you're on with a good group of people that have decided this is a special film. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't get to cover it in the show because it was, I think it was a sort of big week that week. This is something I encountered and it was it was a weird one because I'd watched it on a I think I had like a day where I watched like four films on screeners because I was doing a bit of a kind of screener catch up. And this was one of them and it really, it really kind of instantly stood out as being kind of, you know, something something a little bit more premium and interesting than, than than the other films I'd watched. And it's a first-time filmmaker called Savannah Leaf, who has a very interesting backstory. She was born in the UK and moved to the US when she was young. And she actually someone who represented the UK at the Olympics. She represented Team GB in the 2012 Olympics in volleyball and has now pivoted to becoming a really fantastic and um, intuitive filmmaker and Earth Mama is a film it's a film I think whose subject matter has been you know is is fairly kind of time-worn in that it is about a, a story about a woman who's had two of her young children taken away from her by social services and she is essentially kind of fighting against the system to try and get them back and at the same time she's also pregnant with another child so she's in so it's this very sort of strange push and pull of having her having to deal with her with her own well-being while also you know trying to 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 sort of get her children back and the film doesn't sentimentalize this in any way and it, it, it's very, very objective in, it, in how it kind of 
presents this character and how maybe maybe that she's had her children taken away for good reason but maybe the system that has done this is is not fit for purpose but maybe the people who are involved in working this system like the bureaucrats and the people who 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 she has to interface with are actually good people and want to want to help her but whose hands are tied for for other reasons and it's it's really a kind of very small intimate social realist film that speaks in a in a, it's 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 angry and it's melancholy but in a very beautiful articulate way very very moving way you know and 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 it's not done in your kind of standard issue shaky handheld camera style it's done in a more sort of ethereal and slow slow moving style and it captures a lot of the kind of in the moment emotions and you know it's a, it's a film where you kind of love love this character despite the the flaws and the fact that she's very you know she can't she can't you know she finds it tough to deal with this very awful situation understandably so and kind of has these kind of flame outs and you know her friends are trying to help her and she she can't really decide whether that's a good or bad thing and you know uh, she sort of i think she sees herself as being kind of alone in this situation but yeah, no, it's it's a really, a really strong film and it's on our top 30 of the year and we, um, yeah, can't wait to see what Savannah Leaf does next. If she can, if she can one-up this would be, it would be a massive very, achievement. It sounds very Lady Bird, Lady Bird. Is, is it, does it feel kind of like it might be referencing that film? Well, that's interesting. I've not seen Lady Bird, Lady Bird, but that's interesting you mention it because... Ken Loach is actually a, a, a reference point that I thought of while watching the film because he he has been so interested recently in making these films about people encountering this corrupt system and um, and and sometimes you know dying as a result of of, of, it, of its inefficiencies and you know this there, there is a kind of there is a Ken Loach element at the bo- at the core of this film about you know a, a, a lone disenfranchised young black woman who is trying to like make this system work for her and finding it you know find at every turn there are just more things in her way so yeah no i have i i i will catch up with ladybird ladybird on on your recommendation if you think that there's there's a crossover there but you know totally right on the ken loach thing we'll do a switcheroo i will watch earth mama you will watch ladybird ladybird and we will reconvene Hannah, your first pick of the year, I believe, is showing up. Yeah, technically a 2022 film, I guess, but it never came out here in 2022. And technically it hasn't come out in 2023 either in the UK. It did come out in America. It came out in April of this year in the States. And I guess it's getting a DVD release now in the UK in January, according to the internet, um, from what we can tell. But yeah, this is Kelly Reichardt's latest film. Obviously, A Little White Lies, we're big fans of hers. We did the first cow issue. And then for whatever reason, showing up just didn't come out. Um, We heard a lot of rumours about it getting a release and it being picked up for distribution but yeah, who knows? Who knows what happened? But this is a film, um, it's the fourth collaboration with uh, Michelle Williams, who is kind of Kelly Reichardt's muse and reportedly helped her finance one of her films with her paycheck from Venom, which is still just such a great story. And it is about a sculptor who 
um, is preparing for an art show that she has while kind of balancing her family commitments, her job at a local art college and various home troubles, shall we say, literally in that her shower, uh, her hot water isn't working and her landlady who lives downstairs and is also her friend and fellow artist played really wonderfully by Hong Chao is refusing to do anything about it um, in a kind of nice, like very like, oh yeah, I'll get around to it way. And her pet cat has also injured a local pigeon that poor Lizzie, the artist, then finds herself roped into rehabilitating. So it's a very funny, very um, kind of gentle film about being a freelancer, basically, and the problems of trying to make art under capitalism, which I think um, lots of people listening to this and I'm sure you guys as well can relate to uh, and that push and pull of how can I find space for myself in a world that does not kind of accommodate that sort of freedom and yeah I I just loved it it's a film I've thought about kind of constantly since I saw it and I feel like it's been done a little bit dirty in the UK with it well a lot dirty in the UK because I think it should have got a wide release and um it should have been seen by more people um because it's yeah it's just really special and sweet and like all of Kelly Reichardt's films I think she operates in this mode that I find so um enjoyable even when you know some of her kind of older films I think I'm not kind of as quite crazy about them as a lot of a lot of people are like old joy and even even like certain women yeah I'm kind of not I'm a little bit more like lukewarm on them than other people but this one yeah I think it might actually be my favorite of her films to date I just really there's so much to love in it I think Michelle Williams is giving this very unshowy unglamorous performance she's quite curmudgeonly as as Lizzie um and then you have this incredible supporting cast which I as I mentioned Hong Chao is incredible but then you've got uh John McGarrow playing her like wayward little brother who um, kind of turns up and digs a big hole in her backyard for reasons that I won't get into right now. Um, And you have Judd Hirsch playing her dad, who is separated from her mother and kind of going through his later in life romance phase, I guess. And uh, yeah, it's it's just wonderful. Andre Benjamin's there playing the flute. Like there's just so much kind of to enjoy about this film and that I find special and I I can't kind of heap enough praise upon it. Yeah, I, I think the funny thing that seems to have happened with Kelly Reichardt is that it's almost like her films have become like a unit of currency around like film nerds where like <laughs> let's say they'll it'll come out that like every episode of She-Hulk costs $20 million and people are just like, that's 20 Kelly Reichardt's. <laughs> that means they could have made 180 Kelly Reichardt's for that one series. Like, yeah. You know, she's... She, she seems to struggle with like funding despite like having such the, such a a passionate um group of people that absolutely adore and rightly so adore her work yeah i mean like martin scorsese is a big fan of hers todd haynes is kind of one of her uh, oldest like friends and mentors and it, it is kind of i think i think actually he was the one that said like if she one of the problems that kelly has is that she doesn't have a penis like that's why she struggles to get her films made which is a very todd haynes thing to say yeah i mean i think as well i can understand why the sort of films she makes don't appeal to studios because they're very um quiet you know that she's not making marvel movies she's not making big dramas where lots of people shout at each other she's kind of making these like observational portraits of what life is actually like and i i find that very special and particularly a film like showing up i find um 
very relatable in, it, it, not in you know in that kind of cringe way that we talk about oh it's relatable I, I yeah I just found it such a kind of keenly observed portrait of like being in your kind of mid-30s and not knowing like if your life has added up to anything <laughs> without being kind of you know really dramatic or over the top about it I think it's such a a, a wonderfully understated film and I know it's based kind of on her experiences as well of like she was teaching at a college for a while and by all accounts like her her students were not always very impressed with her teaching methods you can kind of go away and google that if, if you want to know more but it's quite a funny story so it is yeah it's you know there's there's a lot to a rich text as they say and also just I've talked about this with so many people but like even the title of the film I find like very special and that it's referring to this idea of who who in your life kind of shows up for you I guess like you know your friends your parents and then that old kind of adage of like 90% of success is showing up in the first place <laughs> um so yeah yeah I mean I could probably sit here and talk for an hour just about this one film and all the many things I love down to the ginger cat called Ricky who is very badly behaved in in the film and the animatronic pigeon that features yeah I just think it's it's really wonderful and I I believe it is getting a release here on home entertainment in January so please do um check it out yes stop your she-hulk (laughs) rewatch David, more of a kind of crowd pleaser, I suppose. For you next, who doesn't love a Fincher? And you loved The Killer. Yes. The Killer is surprised. I mean, what it felt to me was like, so David, David Fincher had just come off the back of this deeply personal project called Mank, which was uh, made from a script by his late father on essentially the kind of exploring theories about the writing of, of, of Citizen Kane. And I think it would be fair to say that it's a film that met with with a mixed response in that, you know, it it was a very different film for him in that it was kind of, you know, a historical drama filmed, you know, with his sort of quite sort of waspish sense of humour. And, you know, so I think... I mean, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was a big fan of it as well. But I think that certain people felt that he was engaging with that period in a a strange way and also with with some of the history and the... Because, you know, it's a a moment in history that has has been covered from many, many angles. And I think some felt that some of those angles were ignored. I digress because we're not talking about that now. But there there was, you know, when it came out, there was this news that he was doing this film called The Killer... And it was with Michael Fassbender and Tilda Swinton and that it's okay, kids. The real David Finch is going to be back soon. So, you know, hold on to your bucket hats because, you know, we're going to, we're, there's going to be some, you know, no holds barred violence and, you know, the, all, all the stuff we love, you know, David Fincher for, the precision, you know, there's going to be, you know, it's a film about an assassin. There's going to be all this kind of precision choreography and beautiful editing and, and yeah. And, and, I think, and I think it is that film. And it, and it kind of delivers on that front. But I, I, I kind of, I love, I think the, so the film is essentially about Michael Fassbender. He is, a, he is an assassin. And, you know, I think it, it sort of operates under many of the sort of tropes that we've seen from like assassin movies like Gross Point Blank and Day of the Jackal and, and things like that. And, and, and we see him wait you know we were introduced to him in a an abandoned we work in paris and uh he's waiting to uh, administer a hit on an imp- a vip in the hotel across the road and um it it kind of 
all goes wrong for him in in quite a spectacular way in that his his very neat compartmentalized world just very quickly falls apart on this kind of split second hair's breadth miscalculation and the film essentially charts his how he kind of the, the, the very, very, very roundabout way that he has to try and return to zero, essentially, and, and use, use his, his skill set to make sure that him and the person he loves is going to be safe. But actually, the film is... It, like For me, I love the film as a film about this very contemporary idea of, like, machoism and people like Andrew Tate, men's rights... There's this, there's this idea of, of spurting slogans and macho aphorisms and things that kind of justify you being a solo male out there against the world, no emotion. You've got to just succeed in everything you do. And his, his narration is essentially re- repetitions of these completely vapid men's rights slogans that he, that he takes very, very seriously. And... What Fincher is showing us throughout the film is ha- just how vapid he is and how empty his kind of his worldview is. And you know, I don't think Fincher is someone who necessarily deals with such. Con- you know, you, 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 the way that he makes films in this kind of very sort of almost technical bubble might make you think that he's not someone who's necessarily that engaged or interested in like the current political climate or social commentary that is very, very up to the minute. But, I mean, if you look back to, to something like Gone Girl, which, you know, that, that, that's like three different films. Like that's, that's, what, that's a kind of choose-your-own movie, depending on how, how you kind of look at it and what you, what you want to kind of take from it. And I think The, the Killer is, is, is much more of a piece with, it, with, with a kind of Gone Girl-type film where it's kind of... It's a thriller if you want it to be, but it's also, it's this other completely different film also if you want it to be. And yeah, I, 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 enjoy, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I, I, I love that about so many of Fincher's films where it's like you can kind of tell so much about a person given like what they thought the film was about. It does feel it's a bit of a kind of Rorschach test about it. But I know you're not a big TV person, uh, but David, I so recommend you watch the season five of Fargo if you like The Killer, because there is a John Hamm character in that that is quite kind of a similar ilk. And, um, you know, there's a kind of he kind of thinks he's this like unrelenting badass. And there's just some fabulous lines where people say to him, it's just like, you know what you're asking for is to be a baby. <laughs> you want to have like to kind of be, you know, like all of this kind of brutal badass ass in your mind but you just want a load of consequence free actions and for nobody to hold you to account you want to be a baby absolutely <laughs> yeah no i think i think that this this film is all is totally about that but it's funny because fincher never admits that yeah he ne- like he never t- he, he that's the stuff he doesn't talk about well when you even when he's asked he's like no i don't know who andrew tay is <laughs> i find that very mm-hmm. funny he's like no it's not it's not about anything in particular and it's like the biggest troll or one of the biggest trolls because I think there's quite a few like Steven Soderbergh's a bit of a troll as well but um, I, I think as well I, I I said this jokingly on Twitter but I'm actually quite serious about it I think that and uh, showing up great great films about the gig economy and the struggles of, of working under capitalism because the whole thing in the whole thing in the whole kind of like underlying joke in The Killer is that the reason he is in the situation he's in is because his boss upsold the client on the package they got. And now he's been like hunted down by the insurance policy, basically, which is, you know, is is quite silly. And there's lots of like, there's so many kind of, 
I think that Adam actually talks about this in the interview from the Poor Things issue with him. The idea of like how shockingly easy some of his job is. Like there's a bit where he um, orders like an RFD like chip reader on Amazon and you can do that. And Fincher said that they were just like joking about that and like how to make one. And then he said to his props guy, like, oh, I bet you can buy it on Amazon. His props guy was like, oh, you absolutely can't. That would be so bad. And then he came back five minutes late and he was like, oh, we live in hell. <laughs> and realized that you could buy them on Amazon. So it just like stuff like that. I think, you know, I, I think it's such a funny film. And it was very funny seeing Fincher at Venice be like, why was no one laughing? Like, it's a funny movie. Like, um, I think he's right. Yeah, oh, we were I, laughing. I like it a lot. I, yeah, I was laughing. I, I, think it was I love it when a film kind of explains how easy crimes are. It's where I liked um, Emily the Criminal but, um, so movie. much last year. I was just like, well, now if um, you know things really go to hell, thanks to Emily the Criminal, I know how to do credit card fraud. So much is easy if you just have no morals. That's that's basically what what these films are about. Can I add also just just a little colour for the listener? Hannah is actually wearing her David Fincher t-shirt. So <laughs> my my girl t-shirt. It's very on brand. So. Yeah, has a giant picture of Ben Affleck on the back. With your cool girl tattoo, you're really... You yeah, know, I know. Walking red flag. Uh, overselling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I want to do a little shout out to Rotting in the Sun, which I think has the same kind of like fun metatextual levels in some ways of the killer. It's also very, very funny and very, very dark in the same ways. It's sort of Sebastian Silver playing himself as a kind of depressed, washed up director who is kind of really like no longer kind of very inspired by the world around him to make art. And he encounters a sort of vacuous influencer. And then it sort of becomes a, a dark murder mystery there's a huge amount of nudity which you know always here for I mean I always love a film that is surprising I love a tonal shift and I absolutely adored Rotting in the Sun and that's that's one of the kind of I guess perks of doing this podcast because I don't know that it's necessarily one that I would have come across it wasn't one that had a huge amount of like fanfare but the good people of movie sent a sent it our way and yeah probably maybe aside from american fiction the most i've laughed in the cinema this year wait and maybe hitman but you know that that's probably gonna be our end of year for next year yeah i i need to watch i need to re-watch writing in the sun because i remember watching it and not really getting it but but i think maybe because it was sundance and it was like you know we were sat watching like however many screeners in a day maybe it just caught me at the wrong time because i know that david you're a big fan as well yeah, it's one of those films where you have to get past a certain point. You have to engage a sort of like a fairly long, slow start to get to this very finite moment where it, the film like starts it properly. And when it does, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, you have to like stay with it. With praise. <laughs> well, it's just it's such a film in which the thing happens. Yeah. And it's like, uh, until the thing happens, you're not quite sure in some ways why you're watching it. But because you're not quite sure, it makes when the thing happens all the better. <laughs> okay, yeah. I may, I'll, I'll see if I have time over Christmas, I might give it a second, you know, a second look. Because I, I do find sometimes, um, I think I watched one of his other films as well and had, had a similar thing where I was like, I just don't really get this. So I'll give it a go. I'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to uh, hear you both out on this one. Well, a, a film where 
I believe you told me beforehand that this film would destroy me. I actually had to leave the screening before the Q&A because It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. All of us strangers, eh? Um, I, I mean, I don't want to say too much because I think we'll be talking about this one again in the new year because it is technically out on like 26th of January. So I think we will be doing an episode on it, hopefully. But um, yeah, man, this one. Yeah, Andrew Hay. He 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 loves making us cry. I don't think any of his films have not made me cry. In fact, I think he just he knows how to kind of laser focus on elements that will will bring me to tears. And I remember going to see uh, All of the Strangers. Uh, press screening with a um, friend of the podcast uh, Beth Webb and we were sat down and we were like oh yeah excited to see this one love Andrew Scott love Paul Meskell love Claire Foy love Jamie Bell we were like yeah let's go and then we came out and we were both just like faces red from how much we'd been crying and we were like should we go and have a pint and we went and had a little pint and like a sit down and it kind of had to decompress because we were both just so kind of struck so that's the preamble <laughs> to say kind of what a, a, an emotional film this is but um yeah it's it's based on this novel by Tachi Yamada uh, Strangers which is this wonderful it's a really good book it's very different to this film um it's a story about a Japanese salary man who is kind of living quite a solitary life and develops a relationship with a young woman and then starts to see the kind of ghosts of his parents and Andrew Hay has kind of adapted it and changed it a bit and he's relocated it to London and it focuses on a gay man uh, Adam played by Andrew Scott and he's a screenwriter who again like li lives this very solitary life in this I think it's a, a Croydon tower block that he's living in which appears to be empty until he one day runs into his neighbour who's played by Paul Meskell, uh, doing a lovely kind of Mancunian accent. And he's, he's yeah. called Harry. And confirming that the mullet is a uh, choice of his, not... <laughs> Was it? Like multiple... Well, we want to assume it's been in like four films now. The mullet's good look. Anyway, I mean, yeah. So he, yeah, so he is the neighbour, very charming neighbour who um, imposes himself upon Adam, who's very like nervous and very kind of reticent. And um, over the coming weeks, uh, Adam has a strange encounter where he goes back to his childhood home and he meets his parents as they were when he died when they were 12 when he was 12 they're played by jay bell and claire foy and over the course of the film they kind of develop this relationship and um make up for lost time i guess i don't yeah again i don't want to say too much because like a lot of people won't have seen it yet and there's so much that happens in this film um and it, it kind of like midway through i started crying and didn't really stop i think it's just such a, a beautiful articulation of grief and what happens when someone passes away um but you still kind of have all that like love inside of you that you don't know what to do with and this is something that um in the latest issue Andrew Hay was talking about you know he this is something he wanted to explore this idea of what do we do with all the love that we can no longer pour into a person and you know what does that do to us how does that manifest and um I just think it's it's such a, a sad film but um has this like weird kind of hopefulness to it as well and i think there's a real like quartet of incredible performances like some of the best of the year here uh, particularly claire foy actually i should give a special shout out to because i think she's really good in this and i i'm not like i didn't watch the crown i'm not really that i i, I actively dislike unsane so um i'm not really a claire foy person but i think she's yeah she's really wonderful in this and of course andrew scott and paul mescal just kind of next level and yeah it's it feels like a very special emotional but not kind of uh cloying or not kind of manipulative film i think it's it's just honest you know um honest about so many things honest about you know about death about queerness particularly in england particularly under thatcher and 
kind of beyond. And I think it just understands something about how difficult it is to just exist as a single person in the world who kind of feels disconnected from everyone around them. And um, yeah, I, I can't kind of sing its praises enough. I think it's it's one of the year's best films. And I think Andrew Hay is just such an incredibly talented filmmaker. Yeah, I, it's strange for a film that is that kind of emotionally devastating to not feel that you were manipulated into those feelings at all. A film that I, I didn't like at all this year was one called Origin. And like that to me was such a sort of brazen attempt to like punch you in the heart. And like this is, it, it earns it, I suppose. I mean, I did cry at Origin because it's almost like jump scare, like that, you know, like lizard brain kicks in. I was just like, oh God, yeah, that was a terribly sad thing that happened. But this is just, um, I, I almost like haven't stopped thinking about it and it's been weeks since I watched it. And yeah, no, I, I, I've been a big fan of Claire Foy's for ages, ever since she made an excellent TV series about Israel and Palestine that I feel couldn't be made nowadays um, called The Promise. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad she's getting these meaty roles and I hope that she gets some, some award attention for this because I, I think it's a really, really stunning performance. Yeah, and a difficult one. A difficult one to like play the mother of a full-grown man, but play that as though you are a young woman. Like it, it's kind of tricky, you know. She's not playing like the mother of an adult. She's playing the mother of a twelve-year-old. But the twelve-year-old is Andrew Scott. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think yeah. There's one scene where they're kind of talking about. Um, he he basically comes out to her, and it's it, it's yeah. I mean, I just think it's it's such a masterclass in restraint and yeah, honesty. It, I. I, I mean, it, it sounds kind of trite, but um, I do think it earns all its emotional beats, this film. And I've had, I, I, you know, I have friends who don't like it and kind of do think it is cloying somehow, but it's just not my read on it at all. And I also like, I mean, I, I believe I've mentioned on this podcast before that I'm like a massive cinema crier. Like I cry so much in the cinema <laughs> and um i felt very vindicated talking to andrew hay because he was like oh yeah me too now i'm constantly crying i think there's something really nice about a cry and so <laughs> it felt quite vindicating to you know have a filmmaker who was like well you know i don't go out of my way to make people cry but if they do cry i'm not sad about that i'm right there with you and he said when he was editing it he was crying a lot like with his uh with his editor jonathan alberts and i was like oh okay well, even if, if the guy who like wrote it and filmed it is still emotionally impacted by it then you know clearly it's something special but yeah i, I think it's really wonderful and some great needle drops as well a great british pop music in this film beautiful film really strongly recommend it i really strongly recommend your interview because i I love it when a sort of interviewer and interviewee seem to kind of so deeply connect. And I really got that from your piece. Yeah, we'll be putting that online in January as well. I think we've actually got a longer version to go online because we, we had, I mean, I would say we had a good chat. Yeah, he's he's a really generous conversationalist as well as like an incredibly talented filmmaker. He, watching his films, I think... I always thought it could kind of go either way speaking to him because they're so serious in a lot of ways, his films. But, you know, he's delightful in real life. Very honest, very open, very generous and um, really keen to, like, if you have an emotional response to his film, he's kind of keen to dig into that. So, yeah, definitely please, if you're at all interested, check out the film in January. It's a nice, a nice one, I think, for those kind of cold, sad end of January vibes. It's a cathartic one, I think. Yeah, I would add to the list as one of my picks, St. Omer, which I do 
believe has sort of in some ways been like underserved because it came out so early in the year and for a lot of people it was seemed to be a 2022 film and for some people it seemed to be a 2023 film but it was on you know Little White Lies it's considered a a this year film also I think a film that would pair really nicely um with all of us strangers and that like it's looking at parenthood it's looking at like the complexity of and the difficulty of just living in the world at loneliness and I think is very striking without ever spilling into melodrama. Not that like melodrama is an issue, it can be employed beautifully as, you know, something like May, December, but I think saying to Mayor, Alice Diop has got such a, a kind of crisp and 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 subtle take on on what is kind of one of the most awful tragedies imaginable and it's gorgeous and there was something that i saw the other day where somebody said that like all these french courtroom films like you know your saint amers and your um anatomy of a fool like it's a lot of it just down to like the wood in these courtrooms like (laughs) they got some nice courtrooms (laughs) they they got some beautiful joinery going on like yeah yeah i agree with you about uh, saint amers yeah absolutely incredible film Um, and again made me cry but i'm very like very earned crying as well like just such a beautifully judged film about such an incredibly difficult subject to broach and um also manages to delve into the, the kind of ethics of documentary whilst it's there like it's um yeah what what um what alice diop does with this film is just astounding and i do think it has gone a bit under the radar for the end of year lists because it technically fell into that strange between area for a lot of places Uh, amazing film also about how you can make a film in a single room Mm. like the the way it's shot is is really really clever and and very subtle so yeah amazing Uh, i agree amazing film but yeah probably on my mind last year more than it was this year well, not to go full uh, conspiracy theory nut, but when it um, came to the sight and sound thing, I believe it did rank the second best film of 2022 and then the 10th of 2023, because, you know, they uh, you know it judge these things as kind of like when you've seen them. I counted the votes and it got more than, if you totaled those, <laughs> it got more than After Sun last year and more than Killers of the Flower Moon this year. So I think technically it did top But April. did you check to see if anyone voted for it twice? I didn't. I just kind of trusted in the ethics. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I do think there'll be films, obviously, that come out this year. Um, they'll come out in February, March this year that um, we've really loved. And they will kind of maybe rank a little bit lower than they necessarily should next year. It's 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 just part of the UK and our crazy uh, release schedule. It's really irritating. That's why we're here. We're here to make sure people actually go and see these films. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, David, your next one, which is on the list, is uh, Tranquiloran. I haven't seen this one. Tell me all about it. So, sorry, Tranquilauquin. Tranquilauquin. So, weird, weird. Tranquilauquin. This is probably... For me, hopefully not sounding too sort of edgelordy, but this was probably the, my favourite film I saw this year. It, it actually was in Venice in 22, and then it was at, it was at a couple more festivals in, in the interim. I, I caught it in Rotterdam in January, and I've since watched it again, and then it's, it came out here in November. Or may, sorry, it might have been early December, but it's, it's currently out here in, in the UK now on select screens. I think Curzon have it on on Curzon Home as well so it's it is available to view like now yeah it's this incredible film by an uh, Argentinian yeah. filmmaker called Laura Citarella who is part of this collective called uh, El Pampero Cine uh, who are a kind of independent production outfit slash collective who essentially do this thing where one person will direct then another person will produce and another person will write and then some of them will perform in the films as well. And then for the next film, they'll all switch around. So the, the director will then produce and the producer will direct and the right, you know, and they'll, they'll still all kind of star in it as well. So it's kind of like everyone has their turn to make their film. And uh, the, the, big, big, the big film they, they're probably known for is called La Flore, which was a kind of 10-hour epic that I think played at the ICA. I think it opened at the ICA brief, like had a couple of screenings there. It's kind of really hard to see now for some reason. Like the, there's, there's Blu-rays of it are very hard to come by, but that was by a director called Mariano Lianis. And this, this new one is, is not, it's not 10 hours, but it's four hours. And the, it's a sort of four hour film where, you know, we were sort of talking about Rotting in the Sun earlier, where you kind of have to watch it to a point until it kind of, there's a drop. You know, it's a bit like the kind of psycho thing where the film just pivots at a moment in the middle of, in the middle, and you kind of have to get to that point for the, for it to sort of hit you. And Tranquil Alcorn is a film that does that, but after like, like two hours. So like you have two hours and then there is a kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's not even a twist. It's a kind of a change in that direction. And then you've got like another film that is kind of quite different in tone, but but very very sort of justified overall as a kind of piece about. Uh, essentially, it's a piece about a woman who is doing doing a thing, and then suddenly she decides she wants to do another thing, and it's a, f- a film about kind of being empowered to change your mind and and how uh, w- women should feel empowered to break out of uh, like capitalist power structures professional uh, needs to to actually do what they think is like to do what they want to do and it follows this character who is so Tranquilauquin is a little kind of community like a area city in like the western portion of uh, Argentina and it's got it's very sort of the film is very 
I think subtly, but in quite a pronounced way, uh, inspired by Twin Peaks. Because it's very much about kind of the place and the and the sort of strange happenings that are going on there and the various characters and it's told it's all told in flashbacks. So you have it opens with this with this, the announcement there's a woman missing. Uh, her name's Laura, and um, turns out that her job is she works for for the local radio station where she has a a show where she talks about revolutionary women like her slot is every week she talk, introduced their listeners to a revolutionary woman and she's also a kind of land surveyor but also she does think she, she she spends a lot of time in the library researching these women and there's a guy who's fallen in love with her and he's helping her with her research and he is kind of telling the story about her her, her disappearance and essentially this mystery that she discovered and, and sort of let him into where she was doing research in the library and found at complete random, discovered a love letter that had been kind of concealed between two pages of a book. And it was a kind of love letter that was part, that it was clearly part of a wider correspondence. And so she kind of, the, the, the first two hours of the film is about her obsessive sort of delve down the rabbit hole to try and piece together this strange correspondence that was happening between two people who obviously weren't allowed to be together but were communicating in this kind of very charming secret way and it's kind of initially about her obsession but then at the point where you think she's going to be be completely consumed and make this big discovery her her, her attention is just drawn off somewhere else for a completely different reason and this this other this other sort of in thing that she does is more it's more of a kind of like i've said i've mentioned twin peaks but also like the x-files would probably be a good reference point for the sort of second part of the film because it kind of there's a strange sort of paranormal bent to it as well but it's just a beautifully made detailed film that is dealing with these huge i think these huge ideas and, and and it's it's not afraid to, to sort of go quite kind of emotional and melodramatic as well and the writing is just, it's kind of very novelistic and there's stories nestled in stories and perspectives and viewpoints. And, you know, you, you're kind of, there are many plates spinning about like, whose flashback is this? And is it, is it, should we believe them? And uh, is it, you know, is what we're seeing, rea- you know, truth or reality? So there's just a lot going on in it that makes it sound like a very difficult watch, but it is very, it's very much not that. Laura Citarella is, a, is, a, is an incredible filmmaker who just, you know, almost like kind of that Christopher Nolan type thing where he's very good at kind of doing the sort of nesting dolls narratives, but making them very sort of approachable. And she, she can kind of do that as well with this. So yeah, I just, I just, I just felt really, I mean, I guess like, 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 like a bit like all of us strangers, I just at the end, the, the sort of end of this film, I kind of felt very emotionally overwhelmed. But like, it's got that kind of intense melancholy to it as well. If you kind of, if you really go with it. But yeah, I I, I thought it was an incredible achievement and just one of my personal like, I, this is why we go to the movies moments of of, of twenty twenty three. I, I I am not at all averse to a very very long film, but I do think I do occasionally need a bit of a endorsement before I commit myself to what is it like four hours. But now I've got that. This is this is going to be something I'm definitely going to seek out. That sounds incredible. Completely changing tone, uh, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> 
got more no, I... of a sort of like accessible crowd pleaser, I suppose. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um... I mean, our big, most populous film so far has been The Killer, so we did need we did need something. I thought we needed something light because I was looking at the films we'd chosen and then I was like, man, maybe maybe something a bit different and now I just feel like a child. But um, this was one of my surprises of the year because I, I kind of, when it was announced, I was like, oh, I don't care. And then I saw it and it was delightful, which is um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, which is, yes, another reboot of the, the classic franchise. Um, That's what we need. Just what we need. That's <laughs> exactly what I thought when it was announced. And it's actually like very very charming um it's directed by jeff rowe and co-directed by kyla spears i'm sure if you're an animation person these names will mean something um i'm i'm, I'm not like i'm not really I, I will watch animated films but i'm not massively you know some people are really into that i'm i'm not yeah i'm not sorry <laughs> getting angry le- angry letters from people but yeah i don't know i just not normally super into it but i did give this a chance because i'd heard it was very good and um i like seth rogan and evan goldberg and they kind of did the screenplay for it and uh yeah it, it's really fun what can i say it's this kind of you know how would i describe the, the style of it it's kind of a little bit hand-drawn in style but um it's still anim- like 3d animation um it feels very kind of i guess naive the style of 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 the kind of drawing but uh, very very charming it's kind of that same approach i guess they've taken with the new spider-man across the spider-verse films where they've tried to make it look kind of comic booky and it actually like really works here it's very charming and it's you know it's just the story of how the turtles were found by master splinter in the sewers and them kind of growing up being taught by master splinter and then you know being teenagers and wanting to go out into the world where they meet all these other mutants and they have to kind of decide if they want to side with the mutants or try and kind of integrate into society which is difficult because all the humans are terrified of them um but yeah it's it's very very funny it's charming i think they did something really smart which is actually cast teenagers to play the turtles so they're all kind of um around the right age you know between i think 14 and 18 when they were doing these voice recordings and i think it just gives like the kind of chemistry like a bit of a boost because you know when they're all kind of bickering and talking it it feels like you're listening to a bunch of kids and it's it's very funny they're kind of you know arguing about like one of them is really into to anime and like bts and all the others like make fun of him for it and uh yeah there's just lots of little moments like that which are really sweet and it, I, I think it is one of the kind of best assembled casts of the year we've got ao adibiri playing april neil and she's great i think she's a really she's an incredible voice actor anyway as well as been a, a great live action actor and then um ice cube playing this <laughs> this horrible fly mutant called Superfly, and he has all these little minions one of which is paul rudd playing this uh skateboarding gecko called mondo gecko mondo gecko it's yeah it's just really really silly and fun and i was amazed at how much i actually enjoyed it because i I say i i'm not like a turtle person i've seen most of the recentish reboots thought you know like the megan the michael bay ones i've seen those and they're really really bad so you know my, my expectations were on the floor for this one and then i was like so charmed um jackie chan plays master splinter he's really good in it um yeah i could just sit here and be like yes here are all the little things in this film that i loved because it's just 
kind of you know, 90 minutes, very entertaining, knows what it is, doesn't try to kind of overcomplicate things, but in, inserts enough like personality that it doesn't just feel like, you know, you're kind of going through the motions. Um, yeah, r- r- very, very fun film. Whether whether or not you're kind of into animation or not, I think it's there's, there's a lot there. And, you know, at Christmas, it's nice, isn't it, to have something that everyone can kind of sit down and watch together. And this is this is one of those. My my five year old daughter loved it. <laughs> See, yeah, she, <laughs> she 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 was really big into it's it. It's cute. It's really and, sweet. Um, it's a sweet. Yeah, she's, she, we, we were in CEX the other day, and she picked up the Blu-ray and said, "Can I have this? I love this movie." Oh. And I said, "No, it's eight quid." Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I. My my husband took my kids without me, so I haven't seen it. But they have assured me that they are more than willing to rewatch it, and I'm going to rewatch it hopefully around Christmas with my brother as well, who was obsessed with the turtles um, growing up. I kind of grew up where we had like the live action ones. Oh my god, there is an amazing line in the original where Shredder tries to get them to like he tries to he basically makes Bebop and Rop steady, but he doesn't realise that he's done it with infants. Uh, <laughs> they kind of they kind of emerge and then like he turns to the camera and screams like They're babies <laughs> That's quite funny line of cinema possibly um, ever. In this one, Bebop Does this and, film have uh, that? It has Bebop and Rocksteady. They're played by Seth Rogen and John Cena. Are they babies? (laughs) Well, I can't... I don't Uh, think they're babies, but you see the baby turtles and they're very, very cute. And I have to say as well, uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the score for this, which is crazy. (laughs) You know? Those guys are booked and busy. They are booked and busy. They will take the gig. If you've got the money, they've got the time. Um, Yeah, it's... Yeah. There's actually, like, there's just so many little kind of asides and, like, one-liners in it that I do find it... Like, there's a bit where one of the turtles, the one who's obsessed with anime, I can't tell them apart. I know they have, like, different colours, but I can't tell them apart. Anyway, the one that's obsessed with, like... What colour is he? I'll tell you. I think he's blue. Leonardo. Okay, maybe it isn't Leonardo. Oh, no, that sounds more like a Donatello vibe. I think think it might be Michelangelo. I don't... Anyway. Anyway. Michelangelo (laughs) is the kind of bro-y one. Raphael is this kind of the sarcastic one Leonardo is the sort of moral compass and Donatello is the nerd well whichever one the nerd is at um... least that's the classic <laughs> law right okay so whichever one the nerd is is he purple maybe maybe that's why I'm getting it confused yeah okay Donatello's purple um okay so anyway he's he's obsessed with anime and he's he's like sad and so the others are singing like BTS like Dynamite by BTS to like cheer him up like very softly and he just says like through his tears you guys don't even know the lyrics (laughs) and it's just like it's just like such like a a little teenager thing that you would say like they're doing a nice thing you're like you don't even know the song like it's yeah there's so many bits like that which I just found delightful and then in the even like the credits are really funny like the you look through like the name list there's like people credited as like man who thought giant rat was actually a big cat but it was in fact a giant rat like stuff like that it's just like <laughs> it's just like yeah it, it, it's that kind of like silliness that you want from a kid's movie but with intent rather than it just been like haha let's do like fart jokes it's actually yeah kind of creatively silly um in a way that i i really enjoyed um i might watch it again at christmas i i, I really think I it's a wait. delightful film i am completely sold um <laughs> that's that sounds wonderful um i would also just like to shout out in terms of like films that i did not expect to be great um and really were evil dead rise which is also on the little white lies list like another sort of could have just been like a naked IP grab 
I, that was another one that I cried <laughs> and it was just gnarly and great and you know if anything this year does feel like a bit like there's sort of change in the air you know a lot of the tentpole films have not been doing as well it feels like some rather kind of serious stuff some animation some you know three and a half hour biopics have been like doing incredibly at the box office and like it feels like maybe Evil Dead Rise also kind of marks a change away from the sort of self-serious quote-unquote elevated horror into something a little bit more proud to proud to be a horror film it feels like half of these horror films of late have been like slightly embarrassed by being in the genre yeah it's it's very violent which i was quite surprised by um i mean i know it's an evil dead film but like yeah i i i am sad sadly one of those horror fans that really likes like the kind of hyper violent films (laughs) um and uh that and like saw 10 i was like yes you're giving me what it's it should be from these kind of like schlocky franchises like you want that kind of like recoil a bit from the screen factor and stuff like megan and barbarian which i I enjoy both of those films but they're kind of like half like a teenage movie half like an adult they don't really know what they are even though i enjoyed them um whereas evil dead rise they were like yep you want an evil dead movie we're gonna kind of go balls to the wall just like 90 so yeah it's like 90 minutes as well yeah just like splatter like again like really kind of gross things happening and yeah it's good fun good time yeah i have to say one of the worst takes that i've seen um online was somebody complaining about how evil dead rise like attacks queer characters and therefore is like problematic and it's just like you know it's the it's the evil dead it doesn't discriminate it's equality uh, yeah yeah Yeah. no i don't think say what you want about the evil dead (laughs) that that demon will possess anyone (laughs) do you guys want to maybe talk about what the top pick is for the year for little white lies uh something that we touched on not long ago on the podcast and you had an incredible interview hannah but may december number one with a bullet Mm. yeah yeah i'll hand over to david to say more because obviously i did do the podcast about it but yeah i mean this was the one we all very easily agreed on as being like our favorite of the year yeah it was the consensus pick so todd haynes also was the victor of our 2015 poll of films of the year in that he uh, won with his film carol and so this is this is his second time at the top to have uh, silverware from little white lies for one of his his movies yeah, it's it's a very like you know. In fact, someone I was actually on a call with a friend yesterday who hadn't seen it and was saying and was asking, should I see it? And I was like, well, you sh- yeah, definitely you should see it. And he was like, but it, it, you know, what is it? And I was like, mm, interesting. And it's like <laughs> my my my. I mean, he's he's. This is someone who's seen lots of old films, and we actually recently were were in well last year we were in Locarno together. And we went to see a load of old Douglas Sirk films, so we were kind of talking about them. And I sort of said, well, like a lot of people sort of see Doug, like dismiss Douglas Sirk films as just being kind of schmaltzy melodrama because that's kind of almost the impression you have of them, even if you haven't seen them, because that's how, that's how Douglas Sirk is. Is, is is pegged and that's how his films look and feel and that's the you know that's the actors he has in the films and you kind of peg it a certain way but if you actually watch the movies 
they're really strange and, and weird. And, you know, there's lots of, you know, really, really radical and weird things happening in them. Uh, and they're not, they're not these kind of like show your mama um, melodramas at all. They're, they're, they are something altogether different. And Haynes already made Far From Heaven, which was his kind of homage to Cirque. And this, I think, is very, like May, December almost sort of fits in that mould as well of being... It's a film that takes some of the kind of architecture of, of melodrama, but is doing something very, very kind of weird and, and almost quite transgressive with it. Uh, the, the setup is you have Julianne Moore as this woman and it, it transpires that she is in a relationship with a much younger guy played by Charles Melton. And, uh, and they seem to be living this very idyllic suburban life albeit one where they seem to be randomly getting sent dog turds in the post but then but then it's not a, it's not a kind of like you know a shocker film about a intergenerational relationship or and it's not necessarily about grooming as well it's actually it actually explores this this situation from a completely different angle via Natalie Portman's um actor who who is kind of joining them and living with them for a bit and immersing herself in their world uh, while she researches a ro- the role uh, that of Julianne Moore's character, which is being made into what tra- what turns out to be a, f- you know, looks like a fairly crummy TV movie, but one which Portman's character is taking very, very seriously. And on one hand, it brings out all these really, really kind of fascinating questions about grooming and about intergenerational relationships and older women and it goes on a very kind of quite melancholy existential bent about these people kind of in this moment where these people are kind of forced to think about themselves and you know tell tell this actor their their thoughts their feelings their motivations that is actually dawning on them what has actually happened to them and this you know how they have like re, you know reached the system the, the situation they're in but the film is also very much about the kind of ethics of representation and portman it, i mean it's probably maybe you can give some other examples but i can't think of a better performance by her off, off, off the top of my head uh, one that the, that is that is not just so nuanced but she is so in on the joke and what her character represents and it's got such a deep knowledge of what Haynes is trying to do with this film and I think and so I mean you know you expect Julianne Moore to, to, to be on the level already but like the you know the fact that we've got two actors do, doing it and, and three in Charles Melton as well who just really understands the nuances of this story maybe it might sound in in description to be possibly a sort of slightly unassuming film of the year but I think for us it just it it's a film that, like, probably for for me personally, has been one I've thought about a lot. And yeah, I, you know, it's it's one I hope that kind of does well, lives on, is is kind of is it become you know becomes more more front and center than it currently is in the award season debates. I mean, it's a it's you know it's a, it's always a film that was going to sort of ruffle feathers in terms of the fact that it is it looks at grooming in a, in a very kind of empathetic and non-judgmental way so you know i think you're always going to have like pearl clutches going a bit mad so yeah you know tech you know he's he he he's a master and he's he, he, you know i think um after after the, the films he made between carol and and now were maybe sort of not quite up to his you know they were they were decent but not quite up to his very very high standard but this is like Back, back to the best. Yeah, this is like 
I, it's one I've not stopped thinking about. Um, and even like reading the screenplay, Sammy Birch, this is her first, like, I don't know if it, it was her first one she'd written, but certainly this is her first like screenplay that's made it to the screen. And um, she just has come out like fully formed. Like it is such an intelligent and layered script. And so much of the performances are tied to that. It's, you know, it's not a case where it's like, oh yeah, you can see that they've really had to, you know, kind of work. There's some, there are some, there are some writers who don't, it's not on the page. It's kind of you know it's all it's all in the performance it's all in the building around that but this is like it's that perfect storm of having Todd Haynes who is, is such a master of directing actors and then having this incredible script and then three actors who just completely understood who their characters were and how they worked together as this little kind of triangle and yeah I, yeah it's, it, it's marvelous I'm very excited to see what my mom makes of it because uh, <laughs> in theory it sounds up her street in reality, we will see <laughs> how how it goes down at Christmas. But uh, yeah, it's great. Makes me all um, more excited for Sammy Birch's next project, which, um, <laughs> you know, Coyote versus Acme, which nearly got shelved by uh, Warner Brothers. But I think maybe we will be able to see in 2024. I hope so. Before I let you go, anything that you've seen that you think that's coming out and, you know, is is, is too late for this year's list, but is going to be out in 2024? Or do you think that's likely to be on the end of year list when we when we do this in a year's time? I, I want to give a shout out again. We, we'll probably end up doing this one on the podcast um, in the new year, but I want to shout out um, the Iron Claw, which is Sean Durkin's new film um, about the Von Erich wrestling dynasty. Just yeah, I, I I don't know how many listeners will be familiar with the Von Erichs. I certainly wasn't until I heard about this film coming out. But they were a wrestling kind of family generations of men who were uh, in wrestling in the seventies and eighties, and they were kind of afflicted by a lot of tragedy. Um, some avoidable some not and uh this film kind of brings that to life uh, with uh, zach efron and harris dickinson who we love and support on this podcast and jeremy allen white and holt mac mcanally uh, mcanally i think is how you pronounce it um from mindhunter of course again absolutely devastating film i, I either recommend like the the kind of sweetest happiest films or like the emotionally devastating ones there's no in between apparently but um yeah it's very good it's it again it's got that balance of like kind of high melodrama but like deep kind of sadness and it, i think it's a really interesting take on kind of american pop culture and american patriarchy american dads in general i think you know there's this 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 breed of kind of stoic uh, manifest destiny uh, that um the patriarch of this family has that really like sets the course for quite a lot of tragedy in their family and yeah it is it, it's, it's very very good um I, I highly recommend it and zach efron finally getting like a good role after quite a lot of years of, of, of been stuck in things beneath his talents. Yeah, he's, he's very good in the film and yeah, it's great. Highly recommend. He's phenomenal in it. I, I watched it the first time uh, knowing absolutely nothing about it. I didn't even know that it was a true story. And then I read everything that the internet had to hold had to, had on this family watched it again works in both kind of levels of knowledge i would like shout out a film from sedan called uh goodbye julia which i believe is getting distribution in the new year uh set during the 2011 revolution and then also uh during an assassination of uh, a figure from south sedan uh called john garang it's it's a really really stunning film it's from um it's been produced by the man who uh, directed 
directed You Will Die at 20, um, Amjad um, Abuela, who I think is a really, really striking talent. And yeah, things aren't going great in Sudan at the moment, um, but we, we have some very talented filmmakers, at least, doing doing some positive things. David, anything that you'd like to kind of have people look forward to for 2024? Yeah, I'm going to shout out a film called... Orlando, My Political Biography by Paul B. Preciado. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. It's Preciado or Preciado. But Paul B. Preciado is, is a uh, trans academic turned filmmaker who has made this incredible ethereal documentary. And it's essentially taking Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which, you know, um, we know Sally Potter made this incredible film out of about a, a man who, who changes into, a, like quite suddenly changes into a woman. And um, it's a kind of, it's probably more an essay film than documentary, but it has lots of trans subjects talking about their lives and um, also intoning passages from Orlando dressed in a kind of Orlando rough and it is kind of drawing these very subtle parallels between the kind of literary foresightedness of, of Virginia Woolf and these very mundane details of living life as trans and uh, going through like the actual process of going through transition and the choices that you, you make and how, how those decisions come about and the implications as well. And it's just a very beautiful and just I just found it very beautiful, moving, insightful, radical film um, that kind of, you know, is also very is educational in a way that is but also, you know, has humor in it and and just moments where you just want to kind of cry, not at kind of, you know, moments of horror and sadness, but actually at, 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 at the beauty of, of, of self-actualization. Of, of the stories of self-actualization. And yeah, I, I really, I, I, I think it's coming out in March next year and it's, yeah, really bowled me over. Yeah. Um, yeah, another one that um, I kind of heard about on the festival circuit and I only heard very good things about, but I suppose only so many hours in the day and yeah, kind of nice to save yourself a treat for the new year. Thank you both very, very much. The new issue is out with Poor Things, one of the most exciting things that is also happening in 2024. And yeah, we hope to have you listening to the pod next year as well and all of the exciting films and exciting guests and interviews that we will have coming up. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Have a very, very Merry Christmas and thank you very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Sankus. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.